This Week in Startups is brought to you by DigitalOcean, providing the easiest cloud platform to deploy, manage, and scale applications. Sign up today and receive a free $100 credit at do.co slash twist. And LinkedIn, a business is only as strong as its people and every hire matters. Go to linkedin.com slash twist and get a $50 credit toward your first job post. Hey, everybody. Welcome to a special episode of This Week in Startups. I am here with the CMO, the Chief Marketing Officer of Launch, Presh. How are you? I'm well. How are you? Good. What is your Twitter handle? It's Presh D. Kumar. D. Kumar, uh, which is your last name mm-hmm. is Dinesh Kumar. Yep. So it's almost like two first names in Indian, isn't it? Yeah. You're Sri Lankan, but I think Dinesh and is the name of the character on Silicon Valley. Right. And I believe the guy who plays him's name is Kumar. That's right. Yeah. You didn't name yourself after that character and change your name. Uh, par- this is your parents' name. Correct. Dinesh Kumar. Yeah. Uh, Presh Dinesh Kumar is with us. And I found Presh because you came to? Scale. Scale last year. Yes. And uh, you were like, hey, I need a job. And I was like, hey, I need a marketing person. And here you are. Uh, running our Toronto office. People don't mm-hmm. know we have a little office for launch in Toronto. You have three people, soon to be five. Yeah. Growing quickly and nicely. So I asked you to be on because you're a growth specialist and we're going to have a lot of questions about growth. And in fact, this episode is a bit of a growth hack for us. What we've done is we've gone to Quora and Reddit, where I'm active in some of the subreddits. And I guess I have a Quora account with a lot of followers. And I said, let's just pull some questions and answer them. Instead of people just emailing us, let's just take some of the best questions we could find online and we'll answer them and then maybe we'll even take these videos and post them or a link to them in the um speaking of growth acts we'll post those answers to those reddits or subreddits or chorus so first up we have a question i think is a really good one where did this question come from and tell us the question yep so first question is coming from reddit in the entrepreneur subreddit and uh, the question is what are some great low-cost ways to market your company other than social media and Google ads. Okay, so this is from Reddit's subreddit called Entrepreneurship or Entrepreneur? Uh, just Entrepreneur. Just Entrepreneur, yeah. Mm-hmm. So I, I'm active in this one. I'll answer questions. I find a lot of young, like 18-year-old founders and their 17-year-old founders asking like very basic questions or questions about motivation, and I love answering them. This is a great question because social media, Facebook ads, Instagram ads, and Google ads can get very costly, especially if you're in a vertical where it's super expensive. An example of that is installing apps. During the peak app moments of, let's say, 2015, 2016, 2017, people were spending upwards of hundreds of dollars, but certainly $50 to get an app install, which means they were probably paying $1 to $10 a click. It was really expensive. And what I learned from some of my startups was actually doing meetups was more effective. So you you say you had a dating app, you could have everybody on your team invite people who are single to a cocktail hour somewhere, maybe even buy everybody a free drink, which would cost you three bucks each. You get 100 people in there and you say, hey, install the app, give us feedback on the app, we'll give you a drink ticket and we're all going to meet here and whatever. So now you've installed it for $3 per app and that might be much less. Another idea going door to door and putting uh, those door handles on about a new app, like say Nextdoor would work. Um, 
And you actually saw people like Yelp build an entire business around Yelp Elite and having meetups in different places. So real world exposure to products is a great hack. And you can very simply compare it to the cost of your online acquisitions. And obviously content marketing, this podcast is in a way content marketing. I mean, I do it because I like interviewing people. Um, so it's a show. But in additionally, additionally, you can, uh, with these podcasts, even if you're only getting a thousand people listening, if it's the right thousand people and it's for enterprise software or HR software, and you get, you have a 5000 or $10,000 a year product, you, you need only, if your podcast costs $500 an episode to record, you need only land, if it's a $5,000 product, one client every 10 episodes. What are your thoughts, Presh, on things outside of social media and Google ads? And what are you doing here at launch that's actually worked for ticket sales or getting people to the podcast? Sure. Um, so so one thing that just came to mind was uh, a company called Posty. And so they do lookalike audiences and mail postcards to um, the people. So what you can do is go on their platform and literally create a custom audience and then do a lookalike from that audience. And then um, they'll actually take care of mailing the postcards out. You can do your own design or have them design it. Wow. Yeah. That's fascinating. So Posty mm -hmm. is a service that mails real world postcards. What does it cost? Dollar, two dollars a postcard? Um, I don't know how the exact cost yeah. here. But Direct mail is definitely um, one of those things. Were there things that people mention in the Reddit thread that you thought were interesting or otherwise effective? Yeah, so um, one here is your car is a billboard. Um, sure it so is. So what do you think of uh, advertising on uh, vehicles? Totally works. I mean, I am an investor in Rapify, uh, which went through our accelerator. Uh, in fact, I think they were in the first class. And they wrap cars, and it's proven that people see those cars. It raises awareness. Obviously, people are not putting this car is for sale, you know, yeah. ads in their car because it doesn't work. I do think it's hard to scale, uh, but it's definitely worth trying. I always try to think about things that will bring in super fans, like really deep, passionate users, because then for every super fan you land, they might land you one or two more. So they're super effective. So somebody who's a really big fan of This Week in Startups is going to tell their friends about it. They're going to email their friends about it. So I like courting those people and trying to build up uh, relationships with them. So super fan strategies are another one. Mm. Cool. We have uh, another one here. It's uh, sponsoring events, sports teams, et cetera. Hmm, interesting. Sponsoring a sports team is ridiculously expensive. That's not something a typical founder is going to do. But in New York, we see Squarespace uh, sponsoring the Knicks. So they have they decided the NBA to put a logo on it. Mm. I think that's nice branding. It definitely builds awareness. Uh, might not be direct marketing, but you can test it pretty easily because if you're Squarespace and you only do it in New York City, not for the Lakers, not for the Warriors, you get to see if did your uh, user base in New York grow faster than places you didn't have it. So that's why local advertising can work really well. I think radio uh, for a while was getting pretty popular with people, direct response radio, because mm -hmm. Pandora was so cheap podcasting actually um, is obviously very effective for people and you can probably negotiate very hard because there's so many more podcasts out there. Maybe you can't negotiate with ours because we're sold out for three to five months, but a lot of the smaller podcasts, you might be able to just offer them, hey, you have inventory anyway, maybe we can do a test and do it for a small amount. Outdoor advertising also can work. 
harder to track. So I would prefer to see people doing like the high engagement stuff. One of the nice things about the high engagement stuff when you're actually doing a street team, and we've had some discussions of street teams on the podcast before, street teams can be really effective because you get feedback on your product. So as an entrepreneur, if you take your five-person team, you say, hey, we're going to go to Fisherman's Wharf here in San Francisco and just ask people, hey, will you install our app and give us some feedback? And in exchange, we'll give you this $5 Starbucks card. You know, that 10 or 15 minutes you get, they install the app. Now you've got an install. Uh, you may have a customer and they might give you feedback and you might see, oh, wow, the this pod, this app is too hard to install. We need to fix these things. Mm -hmm. But people don't do that. Founders are scared of getting feedback on their products sometimes. But I like forcing people to do that. Okay. Sounds like a, a pretty good question. I think we got some, some good strategies for you there. Uh, and experiment. I mean, that's the thing, right? We always try different experiments. So when we're promoting This Week in Startups, we're looking at SoundCloud. We're looking at... Mm -hmm. LinkedIn, we're looking at YouTube, we're always trying to different strategies, you know, groups on Twitter, we, we've been doing DM groups on Twitter, we've been doing Facebook groups, we've tried all kinds of different strategies. So the most important thing when you're doing marketing is to test, 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 and then come up with another set of tests and take your time. How long does it take an average yeah. executive to master a platform? Like, let's say Instagram or LinkedIn, what do you think yeah. it takes, you know, a, a good tech executive? How many weeks or months does it take them to get, I'll ask it in two phases, to get to basic proficiency and then to get to the sort of expert level? So like, uh, you know, getting to like the seven or eight level yeah. versus the nine or 10 level. Yeah, so um, I think in a couple of weeks you can pretty much know everything about a platform. Um, and the, the thing to note is obviously these platforms are changing, mm. you know, every day. So there's always new news um, that you need to stay updated. So right. that's like the hardest part is staying up to date with, you know, algorithm changes or uh, features change. Features changes, exactly. Yeah. And how you can um, how you can use those features to your advantage, basically. And then to get to an expert level on something like LinkedIn marketing or Facebook or Instagram marketing, Twitter marketing. Yeah, um, I would say like a um, month and a half, two months. Interesting. I think you could dominate the platform if you're right. consistent and... See, this yeah. is interesting that you bring this up because I've talked to a lot of my founders who are trying to find a social media expert, a LinkedIn expert, a Twitter expert, a Facebook, an Instagram expert, and it takes them three to six months and they don't find anybody. Mm. I'm a big fan of if you can't find somebody easily, which in San Francisco or New York, it might be very hard. In Toronto, it might be easier. Um, well, why not find somebody who has just got the aptitude and the attitude and the potential, and then in six weeks of training them, mm -hmm. they're gonna have some, you know, let's call it eight or nine level of mastery, maybe not nine or 10, but they're gonna be pretty close. And if you just have faith in people and you keep investing in them, it's gonna work. And so that's what we've done actually in Toronto with our mm -hmm. team, right? We yep. have people up there who maybe haven't done Instagram before or YouTube, and what, maybe week six, seven, or eight, we're like, oh, they know it now. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. When we get back, we'll answer another question. If you want the easiest cloud platform in the world to deploy, manage, and scale your applications, you're in luck because DigitalOcean has you covered. Over 150,000 businesses use them, and that makes them one of Inc.'s world's fastest growing startups. You get free round-the-clock tech support, and that's for all customers 
regardless of spend. And there's a huge community that shares resources and tutorials, so you're going to get right in there and be up and running very quickly. It's business ready, and it's ready to scale with you. They have very straightforward billing, and you're not going to get dinged because you're in a different geo than other people. And you're always going to know what you'll pay. You'll never get dinged with that surprise bill like other providers. And their flat pricing structure is critically important for you. You don't want to get dinged because you're in a different geo than other people. Here's an incredible customer testimony from Content Ignite. Since moving to DigitalOcean, our setup is ultimately more capable than when we had before the migration. Downtime has become a rarity, and our hosting costs have decreased by more than what? 90% incredible. I hear this all the time from my startups. They save a ton of money and they get better service from DigitalOcean. I know this because Mitch Weiner, my pal, was on This Week in Startups eight years ago in 2010 when he was in marketing. And he said, what should I do with my career, J. Cal? And I said, hmm, why don't you go to Techstars or Y Combinator or another incubator, find the best startup you can and ask them if you can join. Well, he did. And he found DigitalOcean and he joined. Since that time, they've raised a ton of money from incredible venture firms like Indries and Horowitz. And here is their offer just for the This Week in Startups community. You're going to get a hundy, a C-note, a $100 credit. Just go to do.co slash twist, do.co slash T-W-I-S-T. That's cool that they got do.co. That's a good domain name. So do.co slash twist. Grab that hundy. Get that $100, put it in your pocket. Go ahead and sign up for DigitalOcean. It's a great service. We use it. We love it. Congratulations to DigitalOcean and Mitch on all your tremendous success. And thanks for supporting This Week in Startups. That means a lot to me. Okay, let's get back to this incredible episode. Okay, it's Jason Calacanis here on This Week in Startups. We're answering questions we found on Reddit, Quora, and other places on the interwebs. I'm here with Presh, my CMO at launch. Presh, do you have another question for us? I do. So the next one's going to come from Quora. And the question is, how do I protect a business startup idea which would be easy to imitate or steal? Okay, great. So you notice here, it's important to always listen to the question. I always say this, listen to the question deeply um, when a venture capitalist asks it, or your boss, always listen to the question. Here they're saying, how do we protect a business startup idea? They're not saying, how do you protect a business or startup that's easy to steal? We're just talking about the idea. Well, the easiest way to protect the idea is to not go out and tell a bunch of people about it. So if you have an idea and you think it's a great idea, do not go educate the world on your idea before you've executed on it. This is a rookie mistake. Now, of course, you're going to think, oh, well, I'm going to talk about it when I go talk to venture capitalists and then they're going to steal it. So I get this question a lot, Presh. People, oh my God, my idea is going to be stolen by venture capitalists. In the history of venture capital, I think I might know of two accusations like this. One was Cosmo and Urban Fetch, and another one was around a review site. I can't remember exactly, but it was you know decades ago. And in the Cosmo Urban Fetch one, Cosmo, which was a delivery service, basically like Postmates or Uber Eats, yeah. and they had pitched the VCs. This was their claim, um, and then those VCs left some of them to do Urban Fetch and copied their business idea. Both businesses failed, so. Generally speaking, VCs do not have the time to take your idea and run with it. They're venture capitalists. They've decided they don't want to be entrepreneurs. They want to go to Aspen for two months. They want to go to Italy for two months. They want to leave work at 5 o'clock. They want to show up at 11 o'clock like I do. They do not want to work hard. They do not want to grind it out anymore. So they're not going to steal your idea. And they may on the margins 
share information that you've provided that is public anyway with other competitive companies in their portfolio. So let me unpack that. If you go see a VC and you have an idea for a competitor to Airbnb and they are investors in Airbnb, you should never have met with them. That being said, they're not going to forward your materials to Airbnb. But if you had a killer idea, like we have a concierge service built in 24 hours a day to our Airbnb competitor, they might, if it's on your website, take the page, you know, newairbnb.com slash concierge and email that link, which is public, to your competitor. So non, you can't expect public information to be protected. And what you may be doing by going into a meeting with a VC who has a competing investment you may actually be giving them the roadmap of what to tell their your competitor um, to focus on. Just things you might need to go take a look at. That's probably how the VC would say it. So there is also patents, but patents are kind of meaningless in our industry except on the edges. Um, and there's copyright. So copyright exists when you write something. Trademark exists for a um, image or a word that you want to name your company. And there's service marks and there's some other little nuances there. Generally speaking, don't talk about things you haven't done yet. Talk about the things you have done. You don't go on David Letterman or Jimmy Fallon and talk about the album that's coming out in six months. You go on when the album comes out, when the movie's coming out so people can buy the tickets. Same thing in startup land. Don't go educate people. Also, on a credibility basis, gosh, Presh, if you're going out there and telling people, here's my idea, here's my idea, you put yourself in the bucket of non-executors. Mm. Put your head down, shut up, get some goddamn skills, build the product, and then go say, hey, here's what I built. You have any thoughts on this question or follow-up questions or feedback from what you read on Quora and the answers? Does somebody else have any better things to add or things that contradict what I said? Um, so uh, one here is just the answer is you can't. All you can do is to start as fast as possible, hire the best people, build a brand, build a huge brand, dominate the world, and make sure you are the best. I think that's directionally good advice. Mm -hmm. You can protect your startup idea in the early days, however, because again, reading the question, he's talk this person is talking about when the product's launched. Right. But this question was about the idea before you actually tell the world about it. If you have an idea for a better Uber, don't go pitching it to everybody in the world. Don't go tweeting it. All you're doing is educating that competitor and the rest of the world to go do the business. And sometimes that does happen. People are like, oh, I think Bitcoin should have this feature. Or somebody should make a cryptocurrency that does this. And then somebody goes and does it. And then they complain. It's like, you really don't have a basis to complain if you tweeted your idea or wrote a blog post about it. Once again... There are two groups of people in the eyes of investors in Silicon Valley. There are people who talk, and there are people who do the work. You want to be in the bucket of people who do the work, not the talkers, period. Okay, let's take another question. This one's from Reddit and uh, from the Entrepreneur subreddit. So Peter Thiel says, the next Google won't come from Silicon Valley. Do you agree and why? That's a great question. So Peter Thiel is a contrarian. He likes to take the other side of a position, the unpopular side. So that's kind of his thing is to be a provocateur when he makes these statements. Right now, if you look at unicorn concentration, billion dollar companies, and then hundred billion dollar companies, whatever we call those, super unicorns, I'll just call them here, 
hundred billion dollar companies have only come out of two or three locations in the world, China and the United States. I'm trying to think if in India there's been a hundred billion dollar company yet. I don't think so. And I know in Europe there's been $10 billion companies, but not $100 billion startups. So if you're talking about super unicorns, $100 billion, I think they'll keep coming out of Silicon Valley. Airbnb will be a $100 billion company. Lyft, Uber, Palantir, which he is the co-founder of, all of those will eventually become, I believe, $100 billion companies, super unicorns. But it's probable because of market size that the majority of the future ones will come out of two places, China and the US. So it's a provocative statement. It's meant to get you thinking. And it will get you thinking because if you think about China, over a billion people there, they're going to have a middle class. And I believe the middle class there is in the low hundreds of millions. The middle class in China, as it grows, will be bigger than the entire population of the United States. So let that sink in. We got over just 330 million people in the United States. And you know, there's billions of people in China. Yeah. Okay, you know, if 20% of the people in China become, you know, or 30% become middle class, it's going to be a large group of people who want to buy Apple iPhones, who want to take, you know, JetBlue Mint, or they want a Gucci or Fendi bag. It's going to be a very, very powerful force, which means the valuations of those companies that are native Chinese-speaking and that understand those customers have a greater chance of being even trillion dollar companies. But that doesn't mean that China has won the day yet because those companies have not made their way to the United States. And the United States companies, uh, the companies in the United States have become global. If you look at a company like Google, they're number one in every country for search except for four, China, Taiwan, Russia, and Korea. Or four countries where Google is not dominant. Those four countries are either communist dictatorship or nationalistic countries. So in the case of Taiwan and Korea, there's a great sense of nationalism there um, where I think Taiwan still has, and I'll consider it its own country, Taiwan, Taiwan still has Yahoo, made by a Taiwanese founder, uh, Jerry Yang, I believe. Uh, they're still very loyal to it. Korea has Daum and Naver uh, in reverse order. Naver's number one, Daum's number two. And then Russia has Yandex and Baidu. No, Alibaba and Baidu. Baidu is the search engine. Alibaba is more like the eBay. Mm -hmm. It's a couple different things. So it's a great, it's a great controversial comment. Um, get your brain thinking about the scale. India will be the other large scale. But India's middle class is not coalescing at the pace of China's to, uh, from what I understand. Anybody answer that well in the comments or do you have any thoughts? So what do you think of the next unicorn, DECA unicorn coming out of uh, incubators or accelerators? So incubators and accelerators, the current movement of them is very young. So Y Combinator started, I believe, in 2004. You can look that up for me and check the Y Combinator start date. Uh, no Emmy producer, Cody. You can put that into the chat. Uh, <laughs> um, I think it was 2004 was Y Combinator. 2005. 2005. Okay. So they had Dropbox in one of the first classes and Reddit. Uh, Dropbox, Reddit, and then later on Airbnb. Uh, so those a, a Decacorn is going to take typically 10 years to emerge. In some cases like Uber, it could emerge quicker. Um, Dropbox took longer. Airbnb took a little bit longer. 
but it's still there. So it's probable that you will continue to see unicorns um, come out of accelerators on a pretty regular basis. Even Techstars had um, SendGrid, which became worth over a billion. The possibility of anybody hitting a decacorn, let alone what I... I'll call this call a supercorn, uh, you know, like a hundred billion dollar plus, yeah. a super unicorn. Supercorns and decacorns are very rare. They're very, very rare. Unicorns, we get a dozen of them a year, probably half dozen of them a year here in Silicon Valley. But you know, a decacorn has to get over a billion dollars in revenue, whereas a unicorn only needs a hundred million in revenue. A hundred million in revenue seems really hard to do, except if you have customers paying a hundred dollars a year, you only need a million customers. You know, you're talking about billions of people on the planet. A million customers is not the most ridiculous, you know, concept in the world. Netflix has over 100 million paying customers now. So it's possible uh, and probable to get millions of paying customers. Uh, it's not easy, certainly. So I do think, and accelerators are getting better. And accelerators like Y Combinator Launch Accelerator, Techstars. A lot of these accelerators are now becoming where people start their journey. So they're a lot more accepted as well, I think, as like the standard way to start. But a 40-year-old or 50-year-old founder who's done two or three startups generally is not going to go to an incubator or accelerator. So we know that. Um, sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. It depends. But, you know, somebody who's got a, somebody who's a serial entrepreneur like Evan Williams is not going to feel the need to go take Medium or Twitter to Y Combinator or Launch Accelerator after doing Blogger and selling that. So a whole class of great entrepreneurs, the serial ones, serial entrepreneurs are kind of left out of the accelerator experience. They just generally don't need to do it because they can invest their own money and start their company that way. But it's a great question. Great follow-up question too. Oh my God, have you tried to hire somebody recently? It is brutal. We have record low unemployment and talented people have many options. But there is a place you can go where we all go regularly. You know this place where professionals go to explore jobs and to just connect with each other. That place is LinkedIn. It's the world's largest professional network. You know it well. There are hundreds of thousands of businesses who've posted to LinkedIn jobs over the past year and 22 million professionals, think about that, 22 million professionals view and apply to jobs on LinkedIn, not every year, not every quarter, not every month, every week. Tens of millions of people a week are applying for jobs and viewing your job post on LinkedIn. They have the perfect search algorithm and they consider skills, experiences, location, and much more to promote your job to potential candidates. In other words, they put your job in front of the right people, the brilliance of LinkedIn is that there's tons of passive searchers. They may not be actively looking, but hey, if the right job came along, they will grab it. And that's you, you're the right job. Those people are not on job boards. They're not looking for an opportunity, but if they saw the right one, hmm, maybe they would explore it. And we have filled three positions in the last five months here at launch. I kid you not. From our studio director, we received over 68 candidates in just two weeks. It was more high quality candidates than we could even process. It was crazy. And it included director Charles, who is amazing. We spoke to 17 of them because there were so many good ones. And you want to hear the punchline? We spent $140 on the ad. That is redonkulous. 
Okay, so here's your call to action. You're not going to believe this, but if you go to linkedin.com slash twist, linkedin.com, you're already there probably. It's probably one of your tabs. Just go to linkedin.com slash twist and you will get 50, a 50, 50 dollars. That's right. Credit towards your first job post. So instead of spending 140 on the ad, I could have spent 90. I need to get that 50, get my credit. Okay, you want the 50? Go get the 50. LinkedIn.com slash twist. And thanks to LinkedIn Talent Solutions. LinkedIn Talent Solutions, thank you for helping me find Director Charles. He's doing a good job. I don't want to get him high on his own supply, but he is rising to the occasion. Everything is doing great. Thank you, Director Charles. And thank you, LinkedIn. Okay, speaking of which, let's get back to the podcast, okay? Hey, everybody. Welcome back to This Week in Startups. I'm Jason Calacanis. You can follow me on the Twitter, at Jason, or on Instagram, at Jason, or on LinkedIn. Just type my name in. Okay, Presh, our CMO here at Launch, we're reading Quora, we're reading Reddit, we're finding interesting questions. Tell us, what is our next question? Where did you find it? So the next one's going to come from the startups uh, subreddit. Got it. Not the entrepreneur. This Not is the startups. Yeah. So the question is, I'm having incredibly early success uh, on, a, on, a, on a niche social media app I've created, but how do I make sure I don't lose momentum? Great. So I'm thinking deeply about the question. It's a niche social media app. So maybe the niche is uh, based on geography or perhaps based on gender, or it could be based on religion. It could be race based on career. So it could be a female one like uh, Girl Boss, which uh, Sophia Amorose is working on. It could be uh, a dating site just for Jewish people. It could be any of these kind of verticals. And they're, they've got good early success, incredible in fact. So people are loving it and using it a lot, but they don't wanna lose momentum. Okay, so since it's a niche site, one thing to keep in mind is you have a natural audience. There's always a natural audience to a site. So if you say this site is for women, like um, Sophia Amorosa is doing with her LinkedIn competitor, this girl boss network, she's eliminated half the population, men. So you have to think about that. Okay, do I want a service that will never be for 100% of the population? It's only going to be for half the population. And then you could make it even smaller. You could say, well, this is for women who are in, I don't know, marketing or finance. As you cut the niches down, it's easier to identify the people in the niche. So you can very quickly identify who should be on the service and the service can be tailored for them. So if it was for women who worked on Wall Street and finance, you know, there's 100,000 of them, they're on LinkedIn, you know, they all know each other. So you can very quickly get them and that can create a lot of momentum. Same thing with YouTube. YouTube started, they had some ideas of who would be the likely candidates uh, for using YouTube videos or in Mark Zuckerberg's case, he had Facebook only on Harvard then he said only in the Ivy League, and it was really like half the Ivy League, and then it got to the other half, and then it was only the next group of colleges, and then it was for everybody. So this is a great niche strategy. What you can do is open up the niche, reinterpret it a bit, um, and keep adding to it. The great way to not lose momentum is to understand your users deeply. How are they using the service? What did they get value from? Not what do you think the next feature should be, but what does the data say the next feature set should be? What does the data say 80% of users, 90% of users you do every day? So if you were to make it X, Y axes, you could put on one side of the axes, 
um, how often the feature is used daily, multiple times a day, weekly, monthly, yearly, like taxes or yearly, right? But checking your bank account might be weekly, going to the ATM might be twice a week. You get the idea. Paying with Apple Pay might be daily. So there you have a stack there of financial transactions that could be varying frequencies. And then on the other side, what percentage of your users use it? So if you look at something like Twitter, 100% of active Twitter users look at their feed every day. Maybe half of the users use the like feature or the, maybe 25% use the retweet feature. Maybe 10% of users use lists and when they do use them, they use them weekly. So you, you can start to plot in your product what are the places where you should put your attention. You should put 90% of your attention towards whatever those number one and number two features are, the ones the most number of people use the most frequently. And then everything else tends to be superfluous. So what is it on Instagram? Posting a photo in that experience. So probably, you know, half of the people post every day or week. Some people post multiple times a day, of course. And then everybody looks at their feed. So what has Instagram spent their time focusing on? The feed and the posting experience. And you can see that, right? The posting experience on Instagram gets better and better and better. Selecting multiple you know, the stories, features, everything about posting on Instagram is so fluid and easy. And then you look at your feed, your feed is now algorithmic, it's not done in reverse chronological order. So if somebody's uh, having a birthday, I got 600 likes on my birthday post, but I typically get 100 or 200 likes on my brisket post. So it tells you something, right? They're, they know the birthday is special, they, they probably are looking for happy birthday or birthday in the text, they're probably looking for people responding happy birthday and saying, if it's birthday, we should put this in everybody's feed to make that person feel extra special. So that's what you're doing. You're studying the data and that'll keep your momentum going. The other thing to make your momentum go, of course, is to then expand past your niche because you get another group of users. But be careful. You don't want to do that too quick. If you think there's, again, if it was for finance, women in finance on Wall Street, okay, and you got you know, 60, 70,000 of the 100,000 women on Wall Street working in finance. Okay, maybe you want to get the women working in Hong Kong in finance. Or maybe you want to say, you know what, we're going to go in this women's social network, professional network. We got the finance women on Wall Street. Let's get the marketing, the women in marketing and the women in law, and we'll make a vertical for them too. How did I do in terms of uh, other <laughs> responses Prash, and do you have thoughts as well? Because I know this was a was just a this was a Reddit question from Reddit. startups in Reddit. Mm -hmm. Anybody give a good answer there? Yeah. So um, one one uh, answer was um, similar to what we do here, but keeping uh, keeping uh, uh, offline, um, basically not just being reliant on on Facebook, YouTube, you know, mm -hmm. all the social medias, but taking that to an, an email list, a dedicated email list. Sure. And then um, and giving them updates constantly um, just about the product or whatever. In this case, it's an app. So um, just like, I know Superhuman, um, you're constantly getting updates from Rahul, the CEO of new features and stuff. So like that's gonna keep bringing you back to wanting to try the app and stuff like that. Yeah, so that's great re-engagement techniques. That would mm -hmm. fall under the category of re-engagement. So how can we engage customers again? You might see this when you're on Twitter and you don't use it for a while or you're on YouTube and you do use it. They send you, hey, here's some YouTube videos you might like. Here's some tweets that you may have missed while you were away. 
uh, that auto magical stuff really pulls people in because you're like, oh, I wasn't on Twitter for the weekend. And then I saw, oh, Mueller posted something and oh, the Knicks landed this new free agent because they know what topics you're into or you're on YouTube and then it sends you, oh, here's Mark Knopfler's new album came out and oh, Joe Rogan had a great guest. I'm constantly getting pulled back into topics I care about. And I started watching shark videos with my daughters and now I'm getting looped into shark attack videos constantly. That is seems to be the crack of YouTube. <laughs> like literally, and what I love about it is these maniacs who are putting up shark videos, they know that it's crack because everybody wants the promise of a great white shark eating a human, right? That's what everybody wants to see. That's the dark truth. There's one video of a human being attacked by a shark that was taken when a yacht, a bunch of people jumped off the yacht to go swimming. Oh gosh. And a great white shark comes up and you see the shark, it's grainy VHS video. Yeah. And the shark just comes up and chomps down on a woman's leg and they pull her out and there's a tug of war between the woman and the great white shark oh, being gosh. pulled out and her leg just pops right off. But it's so <laughs> grainy, you don't really see it. You see the water turn red because it looks like a VHS tape from the 80s, yeah. which it probably is. It's literally the only great white shark attack on a human that's ever been captured. Yeah. So that tells you something about like the infrequency of attacks. But then what people do is they take an attack that occurred off of Montauk or Cape Cod or Bolinas Beach up here in San Francisco and they make a, a bogus still frame. What do they call that on? Uh, the, the thumbnail? The thumbnail. Yeah. They make a bogus thumbnail yeah. of a shark and a woman in a bikini going, ah! <laughs> yeah. Or they have a giant shark that's like on top of a boat or you know, knocking a boat over and you're like, oh, that's not in the video. So right. kudos to you growth hackers on YouTube. <laughs> Okay, let's take another question. All right, this one comes from Quora. Can I become a founder of a tech startup if I do not possess any tech skills? Of course you can. This is a misnomer. You have to know about technology, of course. You have to be literate. You have to understand what the technology is capable of. But you're talking, the question, again, I always like to think deeply about the question. They're saying tech skills. So I'm going to say, they didn't ask, do you have to have tech knowledge? Do you have to have tech proficiency? You could have technology and some proficiency, but skills to me says you're a developer, right? Or you're a hardware designer, or a mechanical engineer. Well, if you look at something like Airbnb, the founder of that company was a designer. And so there are, and you know, Travis and Uber and Gary Camp, to the best of my knowledge, they weren't writing the code for it. They had great ideas. They were great marketers. They're great leaders. So no, you don't need to have that. So where does this come from? Well, this comes from some mythology of Silicon Valley. Oh, Bill Gates wrote the first version of BASIC. He didn't. He hired some company to write BASIC. That was his first deal at Microsoft. Oh, Steve Jobs made the Apple II. No, he had Wozniak, the co-founder. So it's great to have a technical co-founder. We hear that a lot, have a technical co-founder. Now that is valid. If you're going to start a company and you have three founders, why not have two of them be technical? Or one of them at least. The reason that's so powerful and some accelerators and incubators like Y Combinator insist, insist on you having a technical co-founder on the team is because a team with a technical co-founder will never have to stop writing code. Whereas a team without it, if they raise 100,000 and they give that 100,000 right over to a developer and they're paying that developer 10K a month, month 11 comes, you didn't raise any money, that developer's on to their next project. Or if you hired a team for 15K a month, right? And you're now in month eight or nine, uh, and you, that team in Eastern Europe or in Uruguay or Paraguay or wherever, 
they need to get paid, work stops, and then the startup dies. So it's much, much better to have a technical co-founder on a company than to not have one. But if you're a baller and you've got a great idea and you have the ability to raise money and you're a great communicator and team builder, of course you can build a huge company like Steve Jobs did and Bill Gates did because he wasn't writing the code for Windows. Uh, to the best of my knowledge, he was architecting it. Certainly, he did know what the technology was capable of. Um, Zuckerberg is Bill Gatesian in that he did write some code or Wozniak in that he did build the products. Uh, but I get this question a lot. It's a misnomer. It's a, a, a folklore type thing of Silicon Valley. Most of the great companies built are not built by a technical founder uh, or, or somebody with like necessarily tech skills. And if they do have the tech skills, more often than not, they hire people who are better than them to then do the coding. Because if you're a founder, you have to go raise money, build a team, to find a market, you know, do all these other functions. You don't have time to sit there for 12 hours and just push your head down and write the code. Sometimes you do, sometimes you don't. So great question. The answer is no. What do they say in the comments on Quora? This was on Quora, yeah? Yep, ability to recruit came up uh, multiple times. Um, another one that came up was the ability to correctly challenge your technology team. Um, so what are your thoughts sure. on that? Yeah, I've had Brian Alvey as a long-term collaborator with me on Weblogs Inc. And you know he was writing blogs with the platform and I was going out landing Peter Rojas and Mark Cuban as investors and partners to do Engadget and to do Blog Maverick. So it was a perfect collaboration. If Brian didn't have me, we wouldn't have had Mark Cuban, we wouldn't have had AOL buy the company, and we wouldn't have had Peter Rojas because I took the initiative on those things because I didn't have to write Blogsmith. And he took the initiative on Blogsmith and Blogsmith became this great um, competitive weapon versus Gawker and other people because we could iterate on our platform from Engadget and do things like live blogging when they had to wait for movable type to copy our code and copy what we were doing to add it. Or we could do galleries, or we could do uh, a grid at the bottom of every web page that had our other blogs in it. So we had this SEO hack that I came up with. I said, hey, Brian, on the bottom, I want to do the blog grid. And the blog grid will be a grid that's four by four, 16 boxes, with the three stories from 16 other blogs. We did that. And the SEO went bonkers because back then SEO was very basic. If something linked, it passed page rank. There was no like, oh, these are your collection of sites, so it doesn't matter. So we had Engadget and Joystick linking to Autoblog and Autoblog linking to you know, the next blog that came out and to those headlines. So the, the RSS feeds were put there, which means they got indexed really fast. So our stories were getting indexed faster than an individual with one blog waiting for a third party to link to them. Right. So there were all these great collaborations. So I directed that. I didn't execute on it. I just drew a piece of paper. Hey, you know, four by four, three by three, whatever. Put the three links there. And then next thing I know, Brian's got it up and running in 48 hours. And now we've got a 15% traffic advantage versus all our competitors. So that's the example that the person's talking about. They're directing the tech team. I would even say directing. I'd say collaborating. Because the tech team is going to have their own ideas and have their own, you know, brilliant ideas that you don't have. And really the job of the CEO then is to take all these different ideas and prioritize them and say, this list of ideas could work, but we're going to put them on the not right now list. Let's just put them in a pin. So you and I go through this all the time. Hey, what do we do next? We're doing Launch Festival Sydney. Oh, we've got Founder University coming up. Oh, we've got Angel um, 
angel summit come up. Maybe we should do founder summit. Okay, maybe we should, or maybe we shouldn't. I don't know. Maybe it'll be a distraction. So you can just have shiny new object syndrome at your company where you're constantly like, oh, the iWatch came out. I got to have ours for Apple Watch. Oh, Google Glass is out. Stop everything and do Google Glass. Back to the question we answered earlier. Understand what your users are using your product for. Understand what value they're getting and double down on that until it stops working. So what are people really like about this podcast? It's me answering questions and sharing insight and giving advice or other guests doing that. Or you're inferring advice based on a conversation you hear on This Week in Startups. So what are we doing? We're doubling down here, explicitly looking for questions that weren't even asked to us. We get questions all the time, but we said, let's pick the best questions across other services, right? So that's an example of us innovating. Are there any follow-ups there that you thought were interesting? Uh, Anything else? No, nothing nothing worth sharing. You pretty much covered it all. Great. Let's go to another question then. All right. This one comes from uh, Reddit as well, from the startup subreddit. I was fired on the spot after five weeks out of my at my startup because I questioned one of the founders about funding. Was I out of line? Okay. You were fired on the spot after five weeks at your startup. Well, it's actually not your startup. You were an employee. So that's the first tell in this <laughs> is that this person is delusional and thinks it's their startup. The key here is that they he's this person, he or she is not a founder. They are an employee. Now, the bigger question here that they're inferring is, is it out of line to talk about funding and I I think to a larger extent transparency at a startup? And they're kind of putting in here this sort of lame way they were fired, the on the spot after five weeks. So there's two uh, issues here that we're going to unpack. The first is you were fired on the spot and it was only after five weeks, which means either the founders are immature founders Um, who did a bad job hiring you as a culture fit or they're just rash and like to fire people on the spot. It doesn't seem logical if what we're reading here is correct or you're a disaster and they were looking for an excuse to fire you because you're such a pain in the ass. That's possible too. We don't know. We weren't there. You know what I'm saying, Bresh? Some people are just a pain in the neck and maybe this person complained every day and every day it was maybe this is like, this might've been the straw that broke the camel's back. And we don't know exactly what the question was about funding. Was it, will we ever get funding? Or was it, did we close the funding? Or, you know, and there's a way to ask a question. If, so, if Presh came to me and said, hey, I was wondering, Jason, how do you think about funding launch? Would you ever consider raising money for launch? Well, that would be a nice way to put it. And I'd say, no, get the hell out of here. <laughs> no, would you say, no, we're, we don't need to raise money. We're profitable and modestly, and we make our money through investments. And we see 10 years later if we are going to make money. So, but to what they're inferring about, or this person is inferring about transparency, I think that's a fair assumption that they're sort of a little bit stung that they should have some insight into this. Well, if a founder is going to raise money, um, the team needs to know that that money is there. And it's in the founder's best interest to share that information in almost all cases, Because sharing that information will give the employees a sense of certainty about the company. So if the question was, how much did we raise or did we close it? And the answer is, yeah, we raised $5 million. It's good for the employees to know that. It makes them feel safe if they have a spouse or if they have kids in school or if they're just generally concerned about the ability to find another job. 
they can be resting easy. Okay, we have 24 months or we have over 18 months of runway. So that's a really good thing. If you're a founder and you raise money, your team should know about it. I think it's okay. Um, and you can just tell them, like, this will give us 18 months of runway. And that makes and that's how I run the business. I like to have 18 months of runway in the bank. So there's nothing to worry about. You can put your head down and work. Your job is secure. Because that is one of the number one reasons why people will not join a startup is this perception that it's going to go out of business. That being said, there are times to not distract people with the fundraising process. Because if you're going out and raising funding and you don't raise it, people might see that as a sign of weakness. Or if you raise a bucket load of money, it might distract everybody. So you could be well within your rights to say, we're opportunistically looking at possible funding scenarios. That's a nice way to say it. If I said that to you, we're opportunistically looking at different funding scenarios, how would you feel? Yeah. Pretty transparent. So Yeah. And would you be concerned or not concerned? Would it distract you from your work? No, not at all. Okay. Now, if we were constantly running out of money and we didn't hit payroll last year and you know the sales numbers and they weren't good and you asked me about funding and I said, uh, you're you've only been here a year don't worry about the funding then how would you feel yeah then you know start questioning things exactly so there's a lot of nuance to this question i don't have enough information to pick a side but big picture you want to use the funding as a competitive advantage versus your competitors and versus the big companies that will say things to people in an interview like Oh, you're going to be at that startup? Hmm. I heard they don't have much money left, or I heard that Sequoia and Benchmark passed on investing. Okay, if you're sure you want to go there, they might not have that much money in the bank. Like People will do that, or competitors will do that to each other, or they'll do the opposite. Yeah, we just raised $20 million from Sequoia, the greatest venture capital firm in the world. They did Apple. Oh, we just raised $20 million from, you know, we're good eggs. We raised $50 million from Bill Gurley. And he's committed to the co company, right? So that would make you feel pretty good, right? If you joined Good Eggs after mm -hmm. Bill Gurley put fifty million in, and he had previously done Uber, you now feel more confident. So, um, but I'm fascinated by this person's being fired on the spot. That seems like there's more to the story that we don't know. What was the feedback in the comments? Any good feedback or no? So Did this guy confess that he was uh, a jerk. He, he's he's actually he's got a follow on onto that, but it's a huge blurb. Um, oh. And so that would probably give you some more context, but uh, everyone in the comments seems to be agreeing that uh, that uh, he wasn't out of line and that um, it wasn't his fault. Yeah. yeah. Here's the thing about being fired. I got fired once because I came in late to work. Um, I was working at this computer sales store and I came in late. It's my fault, obviously. But I had been selling a ton of printers and it was just like a very rash firing and then the company wound up six weeks later going out of business. So I realized, well, there's probably some lesson to learn. I shouldn't have come in late. I gave them the easy way to fire me by just doing something boneheaded, like not doing the basic blocking and tackling of showing up on time. Um, but the company was troubled anyway because if you fired somebody without warning for being late once, I was only late once or twice. It wasn't really a big trend like i was late every day um the company was in trouble anyway they were just looking to shed shed salaries so there's a lesson in all these firings and getting fired when you're young it's a good thing you've never been fired no not yet 
Not yet. Not you, yet. You would be the first if you... I would be the first to know. I'd be the first to fire you? Yeah. Oh, my goodness. What, a, what an honor and privilege. No, <laughs> unfortunately uh, for me, I would never be able to do that, be, or fortunately for me, because you're so good at your job. You overperform. Overperforming is a smart thing to do, because if you make a mistake, then the boss looks at it and goes, well, you know, came in late, but I've seen them stay late so often, or yeah... That was a huge mistake. They made an error in this report and everybody took action on it and it was a disaster. And oh God, I got to clean up this mess because the reporting was off. But this person did these other things that had a meaningful impact on the company. What you don't want is that you're not working hard, you're coasting at work, and then you make a mistake or two. So I thought I made the mistake when I got fired from this computer store, Wolf Computers it was called. Mm-hmm. Uh, I got fired from Wolf Computers, and I thought, well, I'm selling so many of these laser printers. But the, in the boss's mind, in the back channel, the printers were selling themselves because they were the new HP2, and everybody wanted one. They were $1,000 each, and the previous printers cost 3000 So it's a total aside, but in my mind, I thought I was crushing it. And in their mind, I was an unnecessary 30K salary or 20, I was 25K salary back in New York in the 80s, late 80s, no, early 90s. Okay, let's take another question. What is a key point in entrepreneurship that people tend to miss? Fascinating. You know, I haven't looked at these questions before you ask them, so I have to think this one through and I'll filibuster by repeating the question. What is a key point in entrepreneurship that people tend to miss? There are two or three. One is you should just start. So if you think you want to do this, the cost of failure is low, typically. And so starting and trying is well worth it. So if you have a great idea and you have some money saved up and you fail, you can always go back to work and you're going to know more. So many people will not take the risk. They won't go work for another entrepreneur because it's too scary. They won't start their own company because they're too scared. It's really very little to be scared at. If you go to a startup and get fired after five weeks, like we heard in another question, or you're the founder and it doesn't work out. Who cares? You can go right back to working if you have any kind of skill at another location. So as long as you're learning a lot and you know, you're challenged at work, which I hope you are. I mean, it's like I'm looking at you, Presh, like, my God, how much have you learned in the first year about business? Right. And how challenged I mean, I pushed you into the deep end of the pool and threw two cinder blocks. <laughs> you caught both of them and then sank to the bottom. Uh, <laughs> swam your way up. It wasn't easy. Not easy no. working for me sometimes. Yeah. Uh, or is it? Good, I mean, no, it's hard. It's hard. Why, but, what's hard about it? Well, challenging? Challenging. Hard? Ch- challenging is a better word. What's it like then? Tell everybody. Uh, what's it like to work for J-Dog, well, J-Cow? Like, what's it like to work for me? Well, you, you can get, be candid. Be okay. careful. Uh, you get uh, you get a whole bunch of ideas, which are great, and you just have to execute on them. Right. Um, and then it's just a whole bunch of iteration and and uh, and testing. Yeah. Got it. So hard but, work is demanded, mm-hmm. but we have a good time. Yep. You feel stressed out working for me sometimes, uh, never? Well, I'm good at handling it, so. You are? Yeah. Yeah, you're pretty mellow. Calm, calm.com. You're cal- oh, is that it? Is it meditation or well, are you doing edibles? What well, are you doing? <laughs> no, I know in Canada uh, it's legal now. <laughs> it is, yeah. All right, stay off the edibles, okay? You're All too right. young. Your brain is still forming at 21. <laughs> I don't want you taking too many of those edibles. So anyway, I think the overestimating of the downside is critically a mistake. It's a key point that people always miss is that the downside is not that great. Go ahead and try. Who cares? Give it a shot. You're not going to wind up regretting it in all likelihood. I think it's a very small chance you'll wind up regretting it. Another thing that people miss 
is how important focus is. Because there's this idea that you have to try a lot of things. And you ha- and sometimes that's true, like in marketing. But I see over and over and over again, a founder gets some level of traction. And they're like, wow, you know, these 300 people love what we're doing. I'm going to go start a podcast or an event or I'm going to write a book, or I'm going to do a TEDx talk, or I'm going to go to a web summit, or summit at sea, or do some other nonsense. Uh, I'm going to write, I'm going to be an influencer. I'm going to join this, you know, 30 under 30. I'm going to lobby to get into 30 under 30. I'm going to do all this other nonsense. When all of that time, if they just focused on that group of 300 and turned it into a group of 3,000 and turned it into a group of 30,000, turned it into a group of 3 million, everything would work itself out. Staying relentlessly focused on what matters is something that people always miss. The other thing is small amounts, I'll give a third one, small amounts of progress daily better than, you know, splitting the arrow or the silver bullet, threading the needle, like you're not going to blow up the Death Star and you're going to hit this tiny little heat vent. That's not how entrepreneur works. Entrepreneurship works. No, What you're doing is every day you're trying to grind it out and turn those 300 people into 303 or 307. And if you're doing that every day and you're adding, you know, 1% a day, 1% compounded growth, you start looking at like, okay, now we're growing 6% a week, 7% a week, 7% a week. Okay, we're growing 30% month over month. If you're growing 30% month over month or 3, 4, 5% week over week, it's tremendous. It's huge. That's one of the things people miss. It's about slow iteration. Another way to say it is, it's very hard to make one feature of your product uh, or one aspect of what you're doing twice as good. Sometimes it happens. It's much easier to take five aspects of what you do and make each of them 25% better. Now you've doubled the overall efficacy. So here on This Week in Startups, if we said, you know, here's an idea. Why don't we find the questions on Quora and Reddit and answer those? that would be super efficient. Okay, what if we put the question on the screen here and up the production value? What if we up the microphone value? What if we upped the social media sharing it afterwards? Okay, I just rattled off five things that we could do a little bit better, 10, 20, 30, 40% better. That's much better than saying, we need to find questions that are twice as good or three times as good. They may not exist. So you're better off iterating in a couple of different places and just staying focused on whatever that core is to get there. What did you? What were the things in the uh, answers? I'm curious because other yeah. people probably have. This is a really subjective one. It's based on your experience. Right. So, yeah. So uh, one point here is the ability to see an opportunity to create unique value in the world and out execute everyone else's uh, and out execute everyone else to deliver on it. No, that seems obvious. I don't think people miss that at all. <laughs> That's interesting that somebody wrote that. Yeah, but I disagree. Like. Doesn't everybody know you have to execute and beat your competitors? That seems obvious. You think people miss that? That's uh, the first reply. That's a bad answer. Um, wait, so- wait. And they also think that you have to build a product that's good? Uh, they said a unique value in the world, yeah. I, you, providing unique value in the world is not... People miss that? Really? <laughs> Looks like it. Oh, so people are coming to entrepreneurship to build a boring <laughs> derivative product that already exists? I don't think so. I don't think anybody wakes up and is like, you know what the world needs right now? 
It needs another Airbnb that works exactly the same. I don't think anybody's yeah. doing that. But okay, sure. We've got a uh, another one here. Um, so, uh, have a blue ocean in front of you with limited competitors, and what you are doing may be out of favor, and your business might not be that sexy, and you may be zinging when everyone else is z- zagging. Okay, now I could unpack that one. That one's not yeah. bad. Okay, which is a lot of times people think they're competing over a market. Mm-hmm. When in fact, the best companies create a new market and they induce customer demand. So in a perfect example, of this would be Airbnb. There's more Airbnbs, according to the sort of meme that's out there in France and Paris than there are hotel rooms. If that's in fact true, and I have no reason to doubt that, if that's true and those hotels have not gone out of business, they've more than doubled the inventory of places to stay in Paris. Mm. Yet the hotels still do well. So what's happening? What's happening is they've induced a whole nother group of people to come to Paris and to go on vacation or to go on vacation longer or to live a nomadic lifestyle. And all of those things ring true to me, which is young people who couldn't afford to go to Paris because the hotel started at $150 a night, all of a sudden are staying in Airbnbs that cost 50 a night. What's the cheapest Airbnb press you've ever stayed in? Uh, 50 a night. Okay. Yeah. And that to me speaks volumes. You're willing to do $50 a night. Yeah. Would you have been able to go on that trip if it cost 200 a night or 150 or 250? No. So you wouldn't have done the trip. Yeah, exactly. That's what people don't understand about markets. And Uber and Lyft and Bird are uh, in the scooters, Lime and Mm -hmm. Jump Bikes. There's another example. They're inducing people. Most people would walk or they wouldn't have gone to dinner. They wouldn't have made the trip. So some people would have been like, you know what? I'm not going to go out drinking tonight in LA because I don't want to get dinged for a DUI. I'm going to stay home and I'll go to yoga in the morning. Then Uber comes out and Lyft come out and it's like, oh, I can definitely get a ride back. I don't have to wait for a cab that I don't know if they're ever going to show up. Okay. Yeah, I'll go out because I know it's so consistent. So that is a good one that people miss is that sometimes the, and I think about that a lot when it comes to our syndicate. Um, and jasonsyndicate.com. I think there's a lot more angel investors out there who have never angel invested. So I don't think the audience for Jason Syndicate is people who are angel investors getting additional deal flow. We do see that. We have people who've done 20 or 50 angel investments they want to join. Those people know how to find deal flow. I think for us, the big open, the big blue ocean is there's probably 20 million Americans who are accredited investors, 15 or 20 million. And of those, let's say it's 20 million. Let's say it's 15 million. Sure. That makes sense. Let's say it's 15 million accredited investors in the United States. And of those 15 million, 1 million have done angel investing. 14 million people have never made an angel investment. They could read my book in five hours in two sittings or listen to it in two or three car rides or treadmill runs, whatever. And then sign up at jasonsyndicate.com and then make their first investment. That's our audience. It's not 14 million. The 1 million probably know about us already. They probably have been in deals with us before that, you know, that's the opportunity. That's where you have to change your mindset of, oh, I'm trying to get the people who are on AngelList or Seedinvest or Republic who have already made an investment to join us. No. We need to find the people who've never made an investment and educate and train them as to what angel investing is and why it can be a profitable and fun thing to do with your life. 
Great question. Okay, we're here answering questions from Cora and Reddit with my CMO Presh. I love working with Presh. Thank you. Likewise. I feel like if I had been your age, we would have been bros. We would have broed it out. We would have yeah. gone to music festivals together. We would have hung out. You you would have been the extrovert. I would have been like the, yeah. the laid back. You might have been a good wingman. Maybe. I'm the ultimate wingman. I can I could probably see that. No fear. Go talk to, you know, anybody at any situation and then see what happens. I, was, I would have been a great yeah. wingman. You go to a lot of these music festivals as a millennial? Uh, I don't. I you don't. don't? I actually don't. Yeah. You work hard. 60 hours a week for me, I bet. Uh, I 50, really 60? But maybe, yeah. Every day you're checking your email, you're checking Slack, you're checking yeah. metrics. Every day. Yeah. See? It's like a little mini not, not mini so version though. of me. I like it. I see a lot of myself in you, Presh. Like you're very like hardworking and you want to succeed in life. Uh, let's do another question. All right. This one's from Reddit, from the uh, entrepreneur subreddit as well. Do you need to have a completely unique idea to have a successful business? Do you need to have a completely unique idea to have a successful business? The answer to this is obviously no. Now, most people would think it's a little bit of a head fake that you do need to have a unique idea. You do not need to have a unique idea. As an example, we'll go to YouTube. YouTube was the 500th video hosting site. That was not a unique idea to put a video hosting site up. But there were tactical and strategic things that are beneath the idea that were very unique to YouTube. So if you look at YouTube, it emerged right as cloud computing became a thing. It also emerged while blogs were a thing. And they had a clever idea. What if we let people post a video for free? Up until that point in time, if you posted a video online, it would, if it went viral, cost you thousands of dollars. And you would have some hosting company with your credit card. And you would have agreed to pay a dollar for every thousand views. So if you hit a million, you agreed to pay a thousand dollars. That was your reward. And YouTube said, we'll post it for free. And if you hit a million, we'll give you 55% of the ad revenue. We'll send you a check for $1,000. If it made a dollar, if it made a $2 CPM, you would get $1,000. That was such a great strategic decision at the time because hard disk space was plummeting. And bandwidth costs had plummeted because all this fiber had been built up in the Web 1.0 era. And there are examples after examples. This Facebook was literally a pixel-by-pixel pixel copy of Friendster. But Friendster couldn't keep their servers up and running. And Facebook, on a tactical basis, decided, we're not going to have any creative ideas. We're simply going to steal the design of other people's products, but we're going to make it so that the servers stay up and running. And we all know how that turned out. right? And if you want to just take it even further, Instagram stole Snapchat's ideas. There's nothing unique about it. And now Insta Stories, Instagram Stories are a much larger percentage of the overall stories market than Snapchat. You do not need to have a unique idea. What you need to have is unique, uh, strategic, tactical, and execution ideas. And Uber, as an example, there was a cab calling service on Vandango. Vendingo? There was a service called Vendango or Vendingo. It was basically an SMS-based version of a smartphone. And you would SMS them. I'm looking for a sushi restaurant in Manhattan. Boom, it would give you some options. And then they had a taxi service built for Vendango. And 
when you had messaging, you would message, I'm looking, I need a cab, and it would say, okay, we're sending you a cab. It never worked. Why? Well, most people didn't use these kind of services. Um, they didn't know how to, and there was no GPS. So a lot of times entrepreneurs um, and VCs will ask, why now? Why will this idea work now? Airbnb probably wouldn't have worked before the reputation systems of Yelp and Amazon reviews existed. Because when people saw Airbnb reviews, 10 years after they trusted Amazon reviews, 15 years after they trusted Yelp reviews, they said, oh, okay. Yeah, reviews online directionally are correct. So if people say this person's not a serial killer and this is a good place to say and they write a nice review and they describe it and the person who is the, and, and they validate and say, yes, this person actually stayed here. So that's a key element of reviews that changed over time, which was, it used to be people would write reviews online. You didn't know if they bought the product, but now you have verified purchaser on Amazon. You have people checking in with Yelp that they actually were in the restaurant. You have Glassdoor that, I don't know if Glassdoor actually checks, but some services do check that, you know, hey, your anonymous comment came from at launch.co or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. So I think asking the why now and what your spin on this idea is going to be. That's the key. Maybe you're going after a new market. We talked about that earlier in the program. You know, Airbnb was going after people who didn't travel all that much, but maybe aspire to or Lime and what's the other scooter company everybody likes? Bird. Bird. Like maybe those people would never have bought a scooter. They, they obviously wouldn't. Those mm. electric scooters were yeah. not popular. Like you'd see a dork with them once in a while. I had one in then. <laughs> I had literally had one in 1999 in wow. New York. It would only go like 10 blocks, but it was fun. It was heavy as all yeah. get out. It was a thousand dollars. Oh my gosh. Yeah, it was literally a brick. It was terrible. Um, it was unusable. Yeah. But nobody would go out and buy those things. But if they see one, they might opportunistically use it for a quick ride. If they can't get an Uber, then they might get addicted to it and then they might keep doing it. So uh, you do not, clearly do not have to have a completely unique idea. What do you think? And what do the comments say? Uh, yeah, the comments are basically different versions of what you just covered. Um, it's nothing, nothing too new in there. Hmm. Okay. You have yeah. any follow-ups for me, Presh? Any um, thoughts on this? Uh, timing, like, uh, I guess there's obviously no way to time when you can, you know, launch your idea. Um, it's impossible. So, like, what is there any difference? Is there anything other than timing to look into? Um, yeah, you can vector against new technologies okay. that would change the playing field. And you can also vector against new business models. Hmm. So an example of that might be subscription-based businesses rather than uh, uh, server-based technologies. So with Slack, you pay per user, per active user per month. Mm -hmm. 10 years ago, if you wanted to put chat software in your organization uh, and have some kind of communication like that, they would say, put up a server, we'll sell you the server software for $50,000 a year uh, per server, and you would buy five servers for five offices for $50,000 each, network them together, and then you'd find out if anybody got value from the $250,000 and six months you spent implementing this inside of your corporation. That was called like Lotus Notes or whatever. Mm. So you'd have these big bake-offs where for six months or 12 months, people would look at all the possible software solutions and debate them and be sold hard by salespeople. And then somebody would win, they'd implement it. And sometime in the second year of this process, 
users would start using the software. And then you would be so entangled in it that you couldn't extract yourself from it and then nobody would use it. This is why IT and all kinds of uh, software companies back then were so risk averse and people didn't invest in technology in the same way they do now, which is they sample and if it grows, it grows like a wildfire. Mm -hmm. So that's a perfect example of the business model of software as a service and paying as you go has really gained a lot of adoption. And that's why so many people have a dozen subscriptions at their company. We have a dozen here, right? We use Slack, we right. use Outreach, we use Asana. We're using all kinds of stuff. Google, Superhuman, the list goes on and on and on of the things we test Elite IQ and try out. So you can have a different business model. All you can eat model, per, pri per person pricing. So business model or technology. So GPS on phones unleashed a whole bunch of ideas that wouldn't previously work. Cameras on phones, GPUs on phones, any of those new things that come out, watches, NFC, they can give you another opportunity uh, to make things work. VR, AR eventually. So there could be an AR, if you just take AR as an example, we could go through augmented reality. Okay, let's say your glasses right now mm -hmm. let you put data all around me. Yeah. So augmented reality, how does it impact dating? Go. Uh, oh, I can see like a profile or something. See my status. Yeah. Married. Right. Single. Boom. Then, uh, how would AR uh, challenge, let's say, or change Yelp? Walking out, walking down the street and seeing reviews of the store. Great. Popularity, number yeah. of reviews. Maybe you're looking at a street and the most popular places, it puts their logo based on the size of the number of reviews. So uh, the logo for a store with 10 reviews would be 10% of the size or 5% of the size or 50% of the size of one that had 10 times as many reviews. Yeah. So you say, oh, if it's got a big logo on the front of the store with my augmented reality glasses, it's a more popular place. Boom. So those are the yeah. kind of things where you just take some new technology, and I do this myself, how will this new technology, VR, impact real estate and we had an investment in a company that didn't work out where they were putting VR headsets inside of real estate offices and then you would come and you'd be able to do a walkthrough of 10 homes you know an hour and then maybe do 20 or 30 and then pick the top five that you wanted to go see they uh, might have cool. been too early but it was a very interesting idea so you can take any new technology and vector it you take any business model and vector it against mm -hmm. it so or like so apps and subscriptions calm People right. used to do meditation by paying $5,000 and doing, from what I understand, transcendental med meditation. You have to go. Somebody would give you your mantra. Right. And now you pay 10 bucks a month, 50 bucks a year, and you're done. Yeah. And it's new content every day and an unlimited amount of content you could never consu finish consuming for 50 bucks a year, <laughs> as opposed to 5000 for some transcendental you know, coach to tell mantra, you yeah. your mantra in your ear. And then you have to sign a bunch of paperwork saying you'll never tell anybody. <laughs> Great question. Okay, let's take another question, Prash. This one's from Cora. How can kids learn entrepreneurship skills? Great question. I think about this often because I have a eight-year-old daughter who's going to be nine. I have identical twins who are going to be three. And I'm constantly thinking, how do I give them all the tools for them to take over the world and run huge businesses? if they want to, at least giving them that option. So I take my daughter to our incubator and 
Anytime I have entrepreneurs over the house or at events, I ask those entrepreneurs, or I ask London to ask those entrepreneurs, what's their business? How does it work? And she asks them a bunch of questions. And then I talk to her about businesses and how they work, and I use all the terms. I don't water it down. So we're in a candy store. I talk about the inventory. I talk about the margin. I talk about the rent, and I just bring it all up, and I just talk about it constantly because my dad had a bar, and I would work in that bar, and I did every job. My brothers and I did every job in the bar from dishwasher to porter, which is a fancy way of saying janitor, um, to prep chef, to busboy, to bartender, to bar back, to waiter. We did every job, which then made me very confident as an entrepreneur when I started companies because I thought, well, how hard can it be? You just do every possible job. And my dad would have us count the money. So I think letting them participate in this is a great thing. Also, talking to them about great entrepreneurs and having them watch entrepreneurial movies. So there's a lot of great entrepreneurial movies out there about people, Tucker, um, or the McDonald's one that just came out. I forgot the name of that one, the but it was founder, really, I think. Founder, 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 yeah, which yeah. was the McDonald's movie. It was really good, mm. good pull. Um, and then also I think later on, there's a lot of great autobiographies. So I think having people read biographies or autobiographies is a great way to serve it up. What do you think? Yeah. Did your parents do any of this or did you just seek it out yourself? Yeah, I think, um, I think, I mean, a lot came from this show um, and different podcasts. Oh, um, you listen to this podcast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> um, yeah I would say like. When did you start listening to this show? Because you're 21 now? Uh, 22. Yeah, 21. You're 21. Um, two years ago. Okay, so you were 19. You yeah. were in school. Yeah. Watching the pod. Yes. Do you remember how you even found out about the pod? Uh, I'm trying to think. Maybe when I spoke in uh, Waterloo? It was, no, it was, it was, it wasn't, I didn't directly come across um, like the podcast. I came across an interview. Uh-huh. Someone was interviewing you. And then I was like, oh, who's this guy? Ah, little and, Google search. Boom. Yeah. Perfect. And that's how I. Yeah, this is one of the values of putting media out into the world is people mm-hmm. then unpack it and yeah. do their own research and then find out who you are. Yeah. So you think the podcasting is the I think the one. podcast is huge. Um, blogs too. Blogs as well, yeah. Yeah. I guess it depends on kids to me meant like preteen or younger. Uh, so young, I, that's where I answered it because that's where my kids are. Yeah. But I think for teenagers, there are also, I understand, entrepreneurial clubs at school now. Mm-hmm. And I think after school jobs and then also building a business with them like um, I, I know somebody whose kids got a 3D, uh, not a 3D printer, one of those laser cutters, uh, and they cool. started making earrings. Uh, so the son, I won't say who, but uh, a son of somebody I know made laser cut earrings, and then they made them oversized for their mom. Nice. Their mom wore them. People asked, where did you get them? Then the mom said, you know, my son made it for me with his laser cutter. It was a laser cutter or whatever. So then the son started making laser cut ones for other moms at school or whatever and selling them. And I think he sold three for $30 each. So now he's learned, oh, I can make something from a very low cost basis myself and then have distribution, my mom Mm -hmm. and a model wearing it, marketing like a commercial and learn all those aspects of the business. What I want to do with my daughter is, and my daughters. So I'd like to buy like a little candy store mm. or an ice cream store and have them work in retail and do that and do the inventory and make that like the after school program for other kids as well here in the Bay Area to learn about entrepreneurship. So if I had a candy store, maybe they could make their own candy, sell it, do online, you know, do local ads and figure out how all that works. 
And if I break even or lose a little money on the candy store, I'm sure I'll break even. Yeah. Make a little, lose a little. It will become this incredible thing. So it's, it's really top of mind for me because I think the world that kids are inheriting is one where skills change so fast and jobs flip over so fast mm-hmm. that you can't just rely on getting a company job for 30 years. You're going to need to have entrepreneurial skills even if you work for someone else because they're going to expect you to be entrepreneurial in whatever business you go to. Even people at GM or IBM, they're expected at those big companies to be entrepreneurial in their mindset because mm. they're going up against startups. Okay, let's take one more question. This one's from Reddit. I've been working on my startup for five years, but I'm running out of money. Should I get a day job and save up or keep pushing? Okay, this is a great question. I'm going to assume from the question and the way it's phrased that this company has either never made money or always lost money because the person says they're running out of money. So either the company doesn't make money and they've been living off their savings or the company's losing money and it's draining the savings. Either way, if it's been five years and you haven't figured out if there's a business here or not, something's wrong. So should I get a day job and save up or keep pushing? Well, you can't then push yourself and get kicked out of your house and lose everything. So that makes no sense. Getting a day job is fine to pay the bills or a part-time job. If you're a developer, a designer, a product manager, a salesperson, you can probably work three days a week, 30 hours a week, find a part-time gig working from home and then work on your side hustle. That's totally viable. But I would challenge this person to think about the big picture. If you've been at it for five years and it hasn't broken out yet, do you have some piece of information or some data or some intuition, any of those things or any combination of those things, data, intuition, customer discussions, that leads you to believe that year six is the breakout year. If you believe in your heart of hearts that year six is the breakout year and your first five years lost in the wilderness was a just the prologue of your story and that your story really starts in year six, by all means, Mazeltov, go for it. But in my experience, if it hasn't worked in five years, it's likely that it's not gonna work out. And I think you have to be candid. One way to test this is if you have 100 customers of your product and you're charging them nothing, so they're users, you will email them and say, I've had a really great time building this, but we're planning on shutting the service down on January 1st, or we're going to charge $1,000 a year to keep it going per customer, and we'll break even. Which would you ever consider uh, paying for this product. And then you just put a choice. A, yes, I'll pay. Click here to put your credit card in. Maybe I would pay, send me more information. Or three, no, I'm not interested in paying. Anybody who's not number one tells you everything you need to know. If they're maybe, well, they've been using your product for years, and maybe they're probably not getting any value. So consider a maybe a no. If it's a heck yes and they want to put their credit card in, great. And if you get five of them to do it, great. If, if nobody responds, if nobody opens the email, then you know what you want. So you really, you know what you need to know. Or you could say, hey, the service is going to be offline next week for three days while I move it over. Uh, let me know if this is going to be an inconvenience because I can either do it Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, or Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Which one will be least inconvenient to you? Vote. So now you're asking them to interact, Presh. Mm-hmm. You're asking them to engage. If nobody engages and nobody cares if you turn it off for three days, if it's if if Slack sent an email, we're turning it off for three days, 
you it would be trending news. Yeah. What? And if Slack said we're raising prices by fifty percent next year, uh, let me know if that's a problem. People would, would let you know, right? Yeah, for sure. Uh, I made jokes on this podcast, like, yeah, I think I'm going to stop at a thousand. People went crazy. Mm. No, don't stop at a thousand. Okay, yeah. I'll stop at two. <laughs> okay, fine. <laughs> Reset. <laughs> we'll go to two thousand episodes. Um, so that's my best feedback here. Um, you could. You, there's no reason to keep a startup alive that's not working. Unless you love it and it's a passion project. So if you're making some weird video game or jump the shark and you love TV and you're geeking out and the the act of just making the website or app makes you happy, by all means do it. But we're talking about a business. When you say startup, you mean business, not hobby. So since we're talking about a business, not a hobby, after five years, I would force the hand of your customers, of your users and see if you can get them to pony up and pay. Presh, what do you think? Um, yeah, I mean, an additional question on that. Um, if he were to, let's just say, uh, keep pushing forward and needed to raise that, what do you think of, uh, I guess, doing like an equity crowdfunding or uh, I sort would, of campaign? Yeah, I mean, equity crowdfunding means that a group of investors believe after five years mm -hmm that this is gonna be a great investment. I don't think sophisticated investors will think that after five years of not breaking out, this is a good investment. Mm -hmm. We don't know all the details here. Right. So they would say, why don't you try charging? So they would probably want that data of what's the business model here. Why is it not working after five years? Was it because you didn't need money and you decided I won't charge for it? It's possible, mm -hmm. but it's not probable, right? Yeah. So at a certain point, a, a founder has to say, how is a startup going to keep the lights on? And if people are not willing to pay, they're not willing to pay. And we see this like from time to time. People shut down services, and then everybody gets in an uproar. And it's like, well, where are those people when the person asked them to pay? Right. And then people go, oh, they never asked to pay. So sometimes people find out only after they threaten to shut it down that people were willing to pay for the product or service, uh, or advertisers were, because they really get value from it. So I always advise... I always advise founders to not be afraid to charge. In fact, I was telling um, uh, the founder of a startup today, uh, who's a very high profile actor in uh, Game of Thrones, I was telling her about her startup, don't be afraid to charge for your social network for VIP access to all these things you're doing. Because it's called Daisy is the name of the app. Mm -hmm. And I said, you know, it's for creatives. I was like, well, creatives pay to go to school 100000 a year. So charge them $25 a month for an app that helps them grow their career and give them some sort of privileges for that. And yeah. like they get the first spot at events or whatever. And don't be afraid. Charge. See if, and the earlier you do it, the more data you can get back. And the data you get back is what you're charging me for, I don't get value from. Then you can say, okay, what would you pay for? What would give you value? Mm. Any other feedback there in the uh, comments that you think is noteworthy? On Quora? This is a Quora question? This is a Reddit question. A Reddit question. Any, yeah. I find the Reddit answers, I find Quora has more professional answers, and Quora yeah. and Reddit seems to have more peer-to-peer -peer answers. So I find the VCs and like the growth hackers, like the people who really want to get social credit for answering questions are on Quora. Hanging out there, yeah. Yeah, because they want to get people to buy their product or service. Right. You know, so like yeah. they're like an SEO expert 
And then it yeah. seems like Reddit is more on the startup and entrepreneur f- subreddits. They're more like peers. Like, yeah, right. I'm an entrepreneur too. Here's my take on it. So you can you can take that for what it's worth. They're both It's probably good to post to both places. Both. Yeah. That's what I would do. All right. This has been amazing. Presh, thank you for taking the time. Good Thanks to see you. Thanks for having me on. And we'll see you all next time on This Week in Startups. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.